First Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us ask God to bless his word read and preached. Our Father, we thank you for your word and ask that it may be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our pathway now. Let everyone be instructed, but especially those to whom the word so directly speaks. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I thought about various topics to preach on, and I came to the conclusion that First uh, Peter chapter 4 is a valuable section for us to consider because, uh, as it may be the case with you, certainly it is the case with me, that you feel as though we are living in a world that is losing its moral compass. And we wonder uh, what to make of this, and how can we not be party to that, and also how can we make sense of it all. And First uh, Peter chapter 4 is interesting because it's so utterly relevant to us today. Remember, he's writing roughly 2,000 years ago, and yet it's as though this could have been written by an apostle yesterday who comes and looks around planet Earth in various cultures and societies and says, oh, this is the word you need. And that is the glory of God's Word. It is always relevant to us. And so that should help us to ask a few questions. What should our attitude be to the world in this day and age? And why shouldn't we join in on the fun? The alleged fun, as the case certainly is. I think if we can look at those two questions tonight, we will have advanced somewhat in how to live Christian lives today. So again, what is our attitude to be in a world that is losing quickly, day by day, it seems, its moral compass? And why shouldn't we join in on the fun? So Paul writes some difficult things. Peter says that. 
Uh, you know when Peter says, you know, there are some things that Paul writes that are difficult and hard to understand. Uh, Peter does actually slip into that occasionally. And verse 1 is uh, a verse that has really caused a lot of people to um, suffer a little bit, pardon the pun, but suffer in terms of what does he mean? You'll notice he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And you can take this to mean his whole life was a life of suffering, or it can be a very specific reference to his death. And so there you have a debate already. Since therefore Christ suffered at the cross, or since therefore Christ suffered from the time of his birth to the time of his death, or since therefore Christ suffered, especially from the time he was ordained to the ministry at his baptism to the time he died. Uh, And so the question begins, which one is it? Well, let us keep on reading. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So what does that mean? Well, if Christ suffered in the flesh, and we are told to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, it seems as though Christ willingly entered into a type of life and attitude whereby he knew he would suffer. And the context is we have to arm ourselves, we have to actually protect ourselves by thinking as Christ did about his life of suffering. So it seems to me that the cross is the culmination of this, but it certainly, I think, probably includes a great deal of his life. Theologians call his life a life of oblation, a life of sacrifice, of suffering. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, you mustn't take this to be a sort of, well, if you suffer in the flesh, in this body that you have, you will not ever sin. Rather, what I think this means is that there's a certain sense in which when you live for God's glory in a crooked and perverse generation, you will suffer to some degree. And as you suffer in this world and you are identified as a Christian as opposed to a pagan, you will find yourself suffering at times. And when you suffer, you are actually more alert to the things of God and less likely to sin. So this is not an absolute you will be sinless, but that the true Christian who lives for God as Christ lived for God will find themselves not joining in the chorus of abominations that we see in the world around us. That is perhaps the best I can do. I do think there may be other things that I'm missing there, but it's not an admittedly easy passage to understand. But it does help us to make sense of the rest of the context, and usually everything comes down to context. So in light of that, in light of believers who are willing to suffer for being faithful Christians, the so-called nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. And then what? Well, we are to live for the rest of the time. Once you make the decision that you are going to be distinct in this world, different in this world, you have to live the rest of your time in the flesh, in the bodies that you have that will one day die unless Christ comes, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So you're no longer to live according to what your human passions are. And the context here is a negative one. Now, human passions don't necessarily need to be negative. All passions 
can be ordered a certain way, and they can be positive or negative. But here, the context is a negative one. Human passions, which will be elaborated in verse 3, you're no longer to live in a certain way. And that certain way is a way that has what I would say uh, a certain type of allurement. Sin has, according to Hebrews 11.25, certain pleasures. Remember, we're told the pleasures of sin. To the flesh, there are certain pleasures that sin offers, and they are tempting. And if I were to say tonight, well, you know what? There's no temptation in any sin. If you look at the whole scope of the world and what will await us and all these things, that you shouldn't be tempted by sin, that's fairy tale living. There are sins that are tempting. There are sins that draw you because you still have sin in you. You still have indwelling sin. And there's going to be times when you're very attracted to a certain course of life. And you at least have to recognize that rather than think, well, I should never be attracted to sin. Should you be attracted to sin? No, not in a certain sense. But will you be? Yes. And you have to understand how you can avoid that. So we live the rest of our life in the flesh no longer for human passions, that is for certain types of sins, but for the will of God, which will never be in accordance with sin. There are two paths that we take. And these sins are certain types of things that have affected Christians from the very beginning. I was reading St. John Chrysostom. He was probably the finest preacher in the early church. I think uh, late 4th century, around A.D. 399, that's as late as it gets, he actually would embarrass his hearers by some of the language that he would use as he preached. But he was the most popular preacher. He's the preacher that actually when he preached, people came to listen to him and they would clap as he preached. And then he preached a sermon, as I think I've told some of you before, where it was a sermon against clapping while he preached. And he was preaching such a good sermon against clapping that they kept clapping. Really happened. But he talks about these human passions, which will lead into verse 3. Because as I said, there is a certain allurement. And he says, even in the street, a man's self-control can be knocked off balance when he passes a pretty woman. So you think, well, I'm living in 2022. Things are very difficult. You know, it's not easy. This is AD 399. I don't even know what clothes they were wearing back then. But this is what he says. A man's self-control can be knocked off balance when he passes a pretty woman. But in the theater, so he says, yeah, sometimes you're walking on the street, you see a pretty woman, you're like, whoa, you, you know, knocked off balance. But then some go to the theater. His eyes are fixed on her shamelessly parading her charms, singing lewd songs, making suggestive movements and gestures. Of course he falls under her spell. Of course. For his body is only flesh and blood. And his imagination, in his imagination, he slips into having sex with her. He preached this, you know. Nor is that all. When the theater shuts its doors and he returns home, 
he in effect takes her with him. For he cannot get her glances, the swaying of her body, her provocative poses out of his mind. So besotted is he with these sexual fantasies that his wife and family seem dull and commonplace by comparison. And as the blaze the temptress has kindled spreads, the stability of his home and the happiness of his marriage go up in smoke. It's powerful stuff. That's why pornography is so evil. It's not reality. It is not reality. And that is why people, a lot of times, aren't even getting married anymore. The age in our current society when people are waiting to get married is going higher and higher and higher. And my wife and I were talking to, uh, about this this week. I would hate to be looking for a spouse in the world, in this wicked, evil world, in my 40s now, or late 30s, because of how wicked things are. So many young men have been so besotted with pornography that they see no allurement to an actual woman anymore. It's an awful, awful time, but it is not a truly unique time. That's the point. So notice what he says. Verse 3, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time is up for doing what the Gentiles want to do, for living a certain way. What does he say? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, maybe he could have used one or two words. Did he have to really go that crazy? But you see, he's trying to drive home a point. And the point is this. When you look at what these things were in their ancient context and what they largely are today, it is clearly a form of escapism. Escapism from reality. People who go and get drunk, people who get involved in these types of activities, they are escaping from the misery of their life. They are usually very unhappy people. And so on a weekend or some other night, they look forward to something that they can just get through the day, get through the week, get to that point on Friday night or Saturday night and get absolutely plastered and escape what is really their life has become. And that's the point of these drinking parties. That's the point of the lawless idolatry, the drunkenness, the orgies, all of the sensuality. It is escape from the misery of the life they know they are living. And I think while it's true that young people struggle with actually doing, what you see in verse 3 As you get older, you may struggle with just watching what goes on in verse 3. You don't go out and do that anymore. You don't even have the energy for it. It looks tiring. So you bring it into your house. You watch it on TV. And so you may not be indulging in these things with the physical act, but you are still indulging in them with the mental act. And so I ask the question in the sermon title that you can figure out for yourself. So that's pagan living. And we could say a great deal more about the harsh realities of pagan living. Notice now, why shouldn't we join in on the fun? 
verses 4 to 6. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. I, uh, my mom, every year, usually my sister puts, uh, we have a little birthday thing for me. I go see my sister, her family. Uh, my brother happened to be in town, my mom. And it was my birthday party. And guess how many friends I had at my birthday party? My birthday party. Uh, you know, my mom's excited. My sister, her whole family got COVID that week, so we didn't even get a chance to see them. I had zero friends there. <laughs> but it was quite a birthday party because my brother's friends came for him. Uh, and then my mom's friends came for her. And I didn't have any friends there. It was just my family. They're my friends. They're my buddies. Uh, and no big deal. I'm not crying about it, I promise you. But I thought, you know, well, I don't have any friends in Victoria left. And I remember that when I became a Christian and I came back, and we went out to the local bar to uh, at least start the rebel rousing of verse 3, I just says, actually, what am I doing? And I just sorry, guys, i got to go home because I've become a Christian. And they looked at me like I've just grown horns out of my head and come from outer space. And the fact is, is that we really didn't have anything in common anymore. We really didn't have a reason to continue the relationship that we had all those years because the things that were important to me now as a Christian were very different than the things that were important to them. And so there's a sense in which our lives went in completely different directions. And so you go back to a place and you say, invite your friends. And well, there are none. And I remember when I said this, they didn't really malign me in a very negative way. I don't know what was said behind my back when I went. But I do know that they were surprised, like shocked. Why? What is wrong with you? They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign you. But here's the reason why you shouldn't. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The point is that God cares about how we live our lives. And so when people indulge in these activities, God is ready to judge these activities. These activities go against His creational order. These activities go against what God has ordained for a man and a woman to be married in union and to enjoy one another in that union and have maximal enjoyment of all the gifts that God has given. And when you spurn that, and when you go after things that God has not allowed, He is ready. You see that? He is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. So I think he's speaking about past believers who have died, but died in the Lord. It's the only way I think you can make sense of this verse. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, though Christians still have to die because they live in these bodies that are going to die, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So why should you not join with these people? A, they are going to be judged by God, but B, though you may not indulge in all of these activities in this life, God has something far better in store for you as you live in the Spirit the way God does. Though you die, you will continue to live. There's a blessing. So it's not just a warning of judgment. There's a promise 
of blessing. And I think it could be that you capitalize spirit there, that they might live in the spirit, filled with the spirit in the way that God does. And Peter had said this earlier in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, there again judgment, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. You're not one of them anymore. Do not live like them. In fact, conduct yourself with fear. When he was reviled, verse 23, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God will judge, so live according to God's will, so that you may live as God lives forever in the Spirit. So act this way if the final judgment is near. You see this in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Live a certain way so that your prayers will be heard by God. Remember James says the prayers of a righteous man avail much with God. Peter's saying the same thing. Live a certain way. Do not live in indulgent, wicked sin because your prayers will not be heard. If you are a Christian, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers so that your prayers may have power with God. Have you ever thought about whether your prayers have power with God? That your prayers influence God in a certain sense? Not that we get God to change our mind, but that God graciously desires to answer our prayers because we are living in a way that He wants to honor them? Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So forgiveness and love go together. And the world is a very harsh culture. There is a phrase that maybe some of you don't know, but most of you probably do know now. It's called cancel culture. And it really reveals a lot about the world in which we live. If you mess up in a certain way that goes against how the culture perceives things should be, they are more than willing to have your name tarnished and canceled because they do not actually understand the love of God and the forgiveness of Christ and they have no understanding of what it is to show some humility because of the sins they themselves have committed but not yet been found out for. And so the cancel culture is really a state of their heart, of the hatred they have in their hearts for their fellow man. And we're told hatred stirs up strife. Hatred stirs up cancel culture. But love covers all offenses. The gospel is anti-cancel culture. If you think about cancel culture, Jesus was placed on the cross. That was cancel culture. That is hatred towards the one person who should never have been hated. And so we're to love one another. There's a, a Puritan called Henry Scugel. He wrote a book. It's a brilliant book. It's one of the best Puritan works called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. You can Google it and find it for free. And he says that if he had his choice of anything to make him really happy, if there was anything that he thinks would make him really happy in this world. Do you know what it is? He said he should choose to have his heart full of the greatest love, affection, 
and kindness toward all men in the world. And when you think about it, it's quite brilliant. What would make you really happy is to have such love and affection for everyone in this world because a lot of the things that actually make us unhappy are a result of our selfish ways, of our lack of patience, of our lack of kindness towards others, and we become unhappy. And so how do we show this love? Well, we show hospitality, verse 9, to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Rosaria Butterfield says that counterfeit hospitality comes with strings. Christian hospitality comes with strangers becoming neighbors, becoming the family of God. And it's never convenient. So a good question to ask yourself is, what is the difference between inconvenient and impossible? And sometimes it is inconvenient, but it's not impossible. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I'll admit, I don't really mind that we have a culture in our house where a lot of my kids' friends come over and they just go in and they eat food. I know some of us are very old. That's like they think you'd have to ask all the time, you know, may I have this? There's a point at which I'm kind of glad that they feel they can go take a granola bar and a juice box. It can get out of control. I don't want you walking out of here saying Mark invites lawlessness into his house. But there's something nice about other kids coming in and feeling like they belong in this home, that they've been around long enough. I mean, we sent this one kid home once because he had to go home and sent him out the door and thought life was going to go on, and he was sneaking back over the fence to get back into our house. Now, I kind of like that. I don't mind guys robbing my house to get back in. Because do you really want the household where people are rushing to get out of there? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I was talking to one of our uh, members in church this morning. I won't mention his name. He's a fine man. Uh, But uh, we were just talking about how I raised tattoos up and said, you know, it's summer. Everyone gets to see your tattoos. And I says, oh, is that probably a message of the Bible? Oh, no, this is from my previous life. I says, well, you know what? Maybe you could be the guy who goes around and sort of flexes your muscles and says, you need to become a member. And that could be your job in the church is you go around and say, hey, you need to become a member. And uh, we got talking and I says, you know, do 100 push-ups tonight. He says, I'll do 200 tonight. And uh, we thought about how someone could go around and they could be the person who says, you need to become a member. Uh, And I thought, you know, that's a bit crazy, mind you. But the point is, we should actually have people who are really good at going up to people, talking to them, encouraging them, wanting them to be part of the family, and they're just really good at that. On Friday, Chris Dale phoned me, and I thanked God after. I love the phone call from Chris Dale on your birthday. And when the phone rings now, isn't it a little off-putting these, this today? You used to answer your phone. Now you realize, who is this going to be? Is it going to be some language? I don't know what's going on. Is it going to be something else? You don't want to answer your phone anymore. It's almost shocking when someone calls you after you've been texting, right? You see Chris Dale come up, you say, all right. And that's a great gift to be able to encourage someone and someone who really loves doing the thing that she does. 
and also encouraging someone to be part of the family of God. And here, it's God has given us gifts according to his varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. I think that's a more technical term for someone who has been given the gift to be able to speak and preach. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Some people are so gifted at serving. Whenever something's going on in the church, they're always serving. They're always busy. They're just so good at organizing things and they love it. And the point is, these are gifts of God's grace to people. And not everybody shares equally in all of the gifts. Some of you are giftless in this area, perhaps. Some of you are giftless in other areas, but nobody is ever giftless. You may not be giftless in every area, but you are not giftless at all. You have something to contribute to the church in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the way that this finishes is really the summation of why we can answer the question, why shouldn't we join with the world in its flood of debauchery? Why should we live for the will of God? Because we will avoid the judgment of God, but more importantly, we will glorify God through Jesus Christ because of the manner in which we live. And there has to be something enticing about our Christianity to people watching where they see true happiness, where they see someone who really does have the joy of the Lord. And I've been around enough unbelievers in my life and still, to a great extent, spend time with unbelievers. There has to be something where they look with a bit of envy on why is that person happy? Why is that person secure? Why is that person not like us rushing into things like a madman? Because we are seeking to glorify God through Jesus Christ so that there may be glory and dominion towards Him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you will please bless us as a church to avoid judgment, but not merely to do everything to avoid judgment, rather to do all things to glorify God through Jesus Christ, to know that when we forsake these patterns of behavior that the world indulges in, we will one day live in the Spirit forever and ever that it will be worth it to know that whatever we give up in this world for the sake of Christ will be rewarded a thousandfold and even more in the world to come. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.